Welcome to Big Blend Radio with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy, editors of BigBlendMagazine.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's military show, where every first Monday we get to chat with military historian and author Mike Gordia. He's an award-winning author. He's got, is it 21 books now, Mike? 21? Actually, it's 25. 25. I keep, why do I keep, I think 20, I just think I'm still 21. That's what it is, Mm -hmm. you know? But um, yeah, military historian, U.S. Army veteran, and also named author of the year in 2021 by the Military Writers Society of America. And you may have seen him on the History Channel. Are you going to go back on the screen, Mike? Yes, ma'am. So uh, there is, let's see, there is another show that's in the works. Now, there's very likely going to be a season two of I Was There. Um, But uh, just recently... I uh, recorded some segments for an upcoming show on A&E called Military Mysteries. And uh, oh. as, of, as of this past spring, uh, it was supposed to be in its final stages of post-production. So, uh, yeah, we're just going to see uh, when the network puts it in the queue. Very cool. It's exciting. I mean, when you were in the military and service, did you think like you would write 25 books and be on the History Channel? never in a million years yeah see it's like well you you put your mind towards something right Mm -hmm. and um obviously and on top of that you're also a teacher and you educate and um you're always educating us and today i know we're going to be talking about d-day again uh d-day is june 6th everybody um june tuesday june 6 1944 and uh, we talk about uh, Normandy, the Normandy landings. And so before we get to, I know you're going to share a couple stories, which you do so well about, you know, military heroes and um, telling us the, the human story of, of military and war. Um, I do want to let people know that you've got two of your latest books out of the 25 um, are the Combat Diaries, True Stories from the Frontlines of World War II, Good Reading for D-Day, and also Coyote Recon, The Forgotten Wars of Colonel J.D. Vanderpool, who I just want to call him. He's a badass. I just just put a stamp on the front cover of the book like, you know, um, yeah, Coyote Recon, the badass. But um, everyone, Mike's books are everywhere you can get books. And if they're not in your local bookstore, you should go talk to your book, you know, bookstore people. Um, You can also, of course, Amazon, all those great places and uh, bookshop.org, all those, all those places. But you can also go to MikeGuardia.com. Follow him on YouTube. He's always posting all kinds of things that are blowing up, (laughs) too, Um, but also showing the faces of war, people, what they're, you know, the soldiers and what they're going through, whether it's World War II in Vietnam or Vietnam. Um, He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram now, too, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. So. Let's go to D-Day because it's a it's you know a term we all know it's a, an event that we all know about but maybe we don't what happens you know you think you know and if we haven't been in school for a while we may have forgotten what D-Day is all about so for mm-hmm. those of us who need a, a quick history lesson on the Normandy landings can you give us an overview of what happened that day Yes ma'am so let's wind the clocks back to the 6th of June in 1944 And uh, this was a very critical part of the timeline of World War II because we were planning an invasion of Europe. You know, this was the 
first time where American and allied forces in mass were going to be penetrating the European continent, trying to get a toehold really on the continent mm. to roll back the last of the Nazi war machine. And it was very important in the sense that, uh, you know, if this invasion failed, and if we failed to get a firm base of operations on the continent, then, you know, we uh, could very easily have lost the momentum of the war. And it would have gone on for several years longer than what it ultimately did. You know, there was a lot that was riding on the success of this European invasion. And you know, at the same time, you know, the Russians, for their part, they were heavily engaged on the Eastern Front. But, mm. uh, you know, the, uh, for as much headway as they were making against the Nazis in the East, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's not really a well-known secret that Joseph Stalin was begging FDR to have the Allies open up a second front of the war because, you know, it got to a point where, mm -hmm. you know, even the Russians were taking a tremendous beating, you know, trying to trying to push back the uh, trying to push back the Nazi war machine. In, so it goes back to FDR. Here we are again. I was just mentioning that mm -hmm. before we got talking about it. Do you think <laughs> that people do you think he was um, forgotten about in World War Two? You know what he did, FDR? <laughs> What well, you, you know, I I don't think he's necessarily forgotten. I think, you know, I think he uh, I think he just doesn't get a lot of the credit that mm. other wartime presidents have gotten. Um, you know, I uh, you know there, there was a an exercise I was doing with my college students uh, quite some time ago, and I was asking them. You know, this was actually a, a precursor to. Um, one of, one of the lessons we were doing to study history at the turn of the century. And I was saying, okay, well, when you think of great US presidents who comes to mind, and I would give them two minutes or so to think of, you know, people who would fit the definition of a great US president. And then I had a lot of the students share their answers. Mm -hmm. And they all came up. Now, slight variations in the names, but the top five generally included the following. You always saw Lincoln and Washington Mm -hmm. Very often, JFK was in there. Very often, Teddy Roosevelt was in there. But almost all of them, almost all of them had FDR in there as well. And when I asked oh, them to wow. unpack, yeah, so when I asked them to, uh, you know, to, to unpack it and explain a lot of the reasons that they had for why they selected all of those individuals, when they defended the answer for FDR, they said, well, you know, his leadership in the context of the Great Depression and also during World War II. So th that's what a lot of people tend to associate him with. But, mm. you know, I, I don't think that if you take a look at American history as a survey, I think that most of the attention for World War II is given to the military commanders and not the wartime commander in chief, if that makes sense. Okay. I more, I yeah. Yeah, I yeah, think more of the yeah more of the popular press is given to well, hey, look what our uh, military was doing after we came back strong after Pearl Harbor, and look at the landings in North Africa, and look at what Eisenhower and Patton and MacArthur and George Marshall were doing. So it, it, I think the popular focus tends to be on the military leaders and the military campaigns, and less press time is given to, well, hey, you know, this is what FDR was doing with the Wartime Production Board and how, you know, these decisions were made at places, you know, like the Malta Conference or whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
it's interesting you say all that because you know when you think about yeah you know when we were talking the um back when steve schnacker was on the show with you about celebrities and uh -huh. how there was like the propaganda desk or something like that like ronald right. reagan was doing that part right when you think about like it's almost like the communication um I don't know, maybe, do you think we have better communicate? Well, uh, let's not get into politics, but do you think we have better communication now about what's happening in the world than at that time for like a president? It seems to me like FDR was running around and doing a whole bunch of stuff and it just was moving fast. Yet at the same time for the troops out there actually fighting, you need to get stuff done. So it's kind of like two completely different games being played. And I don't mean that as a, you know, frivolous by the game, but it's like two different battles. Let's put it that way. One was mm -hmm. like, how are we going to get things to people? But then once they're out there fighting, it's like, we need to move and we don't really, you know, you know what I mean? It's like two different things going on right. at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I don't think you know, we got to know everything at that point as fast as what we can now find out mm -hmm. what's going on. You know? Right. So I, I think communication these days happens a lot quicker and there's a lot more real-time information that's passed. Uh, the trade-off for that that I've seen that I've noticed is that, well, yeah, we're quicker to get information, but because the information space has been so democratized to the point that anyone can weigh in with their own brand of information, it leads to an increase in misinformation. Mm. And there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of rumors that circulate. There's a lot of uh, biases and slant that and uh, slanting that circulates as well. So I would say that the news is probably not as heavily vetted as it was back then, because yeah, the information was slower to be published but it went through i think a better vetting process more of a fact-checking process and mm -hmm. uh you know the uh the trade-off that you have now at least what i've noticed is that yeah stuff gets released and information gets put out there but you know gosh we all get information overload so quickly and um you know people are jumping to conclusions they're they're making assumptions that somehow become gospel truths that months later we found out were really never valid to begin with yeah and and maybe not put in context with the right. whole bigger scheme either because it's like oh do you know la 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 but let's put all the puzzle pieces together and i feel like that's what what's kind of a problem whereas you know during those days they they really did have this information desk and you know it's it's yeah just and and also then you know where are we getting our news from that's kind of a problem we have now too is right. you know who's who's you know really uh, it's really difficult i mean nowadays you can replicate people's voices through ai like i wonder mm -hmm. what's going to happen that's a whole other discussion mike um ai in the military like whoa oh yeah that's some crazy stuff that can happen <laughs> but let's go back yeah. to uh, the normandy landings because a lot of people died with this mm -hmm. and right. it was on all sides right the allied forces mm -hmm. lost uh, Germany, uh, you know, so this was a very bloody event that happened and something why we always look back to it, right? This is what changed the course of World War II, 
pretty much this event. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. How many people? I was look, looking at this today and I was like, uh, at least 10,000 <clears> for <throat> allies. And then I was looking 4,400 confirmed dead. Casualties were 10,000. But um, for German casualties, it, it from what I was reading was like four to 9,000, 4,000 to 9,000 mm -hmm. people on the German side. So they don't really know. Like, that's weird. Like, how? what happens to people? Maybe just out at sea and things like that, where you don't know? Yeah, or... well, you know, um, a lot of it, uh, a lot of it boils down to, you know, people who are missing in action. And after a while, they are declared dead in absentia. So, mm -hmm. you know, there are a lot of people that really, really just never get recovered. And then casualty counts can also change from day to day. You know, sometimes you don't have a clear picture of who is actually a casualty and who isn't, or you have to just give your best guess estimate at one particular point in time on one particular day. And then you try to adjust that number later, like, okay, well, yeah, we had maybe 10 casualties in this one unit, but okay, it only turned out to be seven because the guys who we thought were battlefield casualties you know, it turned out that, you know, one just had heat exhaustion, the other one just, you know, got a really bad gash on his arm, but we patched him up and now he's back in the fight. So, uh, you know, yeah. those those casualty numbers can change from time to time. And then some units do underreport their casualty figures. They're like, okay, well, you know. Oh, we don't want to look a, like, yeah. Oh. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, then other times, other times, uh, when units are given their given their body counts of telling up how many enemy soldiers they killed, they inflate those body counts. So you're always going to get a ballpark number mm. on either side, just really based on what the reports are saying in real time. And then you also, of course, have that X, X factor in there to say, okay, well, this person is officially labeled as missing in action. We don't know if they're dead or alive, but gosh, you know, it's been, you know, 30, 40 years since we've heard from this person, let's presume that they're dead, but their status is always listed as uh, officially being missing in action. Wow. So when when they landed, the allies, allies landed on the Normandy coast, and this is something I want mm -hmm. to touch on, is that there were five different pieces of it, right? And I want to talk about the names. And I know we talked about this last year, but I, I still, right. you know, you know, we like to name things around your cars, you yeah. know, everything's got to be named. Um, uh -huh. But I'm going to touch on those names. But when they landed, I mean, it wasn't like it was just a, it wasn't that sneak attack. People knew yeah. and, and they were getting attacked and, and um, there were, I mean, it wasn't like it was a soft, pretty beach. This isn't the Bahamas when they landed. Right. There were there were things really making it hard for them to actually move in. Yeah, it was. So, you know, it was uh, it was no big secret. And Hitler and most of the German high command knew that an attack was coming and they knew that uh, the allies were going to do one of two or actually the allies were going to do one of three things. They were going to invade northern Europe. They were going to invade Southern Europe, or they were going to do both. And mm. the Germans, for their part, said, okay, well, let's plan on them doing both. But if we had to gamble, let's say that the most likely course of action, the enemy's most probable course of action, 
would be to invade through the north because that would give them the quickest thoroughfare across northern France and into the borders of the fatherland. So, you know, using what resources they had and even, you know, organizing quite a few elements of the civilian militia, uh, they, you know, put uh, put as much effort as they could into into uh, in, in, into defending the parts of France where they had a heavy military presence. Mm -hmm. But they all knew that it was coming, and more to the point, they also knew that it was going to be a function of the tides, mm -hmm. because we see the popular images of D-Day, and we see right. the uh, soldiers. We, we 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 see them rushing the beaches at Normandy. And we see those little, uh, we see those little um, iron obstacles in, that are scattered along the beach, and uh, they look almost out of place. They kind of look like these. They kind of look like these three-dimensional X-shaped figures. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they were there, they were actually put there initially as underwater obstacles to uh, tear off the uh, tear off the tracks and tear up the underbellies of the amphibious landing craft. As uh, as they were making their way to the shore, but the uh, tide went out right before D-Day, so the entire beach was at low tide, and that's why you see the soldiers um, weaving in and out uh, between those uh, between those iron obstacles. It's because wow, they were they could see yeah, yeah, because because everything was in low tide, so they knew that uh, they knew it was coming. They knew generally where it was going to be, and they had planned for. It to be a true amphibious assault without much wiggle room between the end of the surf and the start of dry land proper. Mm. Uh, so, so yeah, it was no real big. So it wasn't. It wasn't a question of when, but if. And they generally knew the area, so they just tried to make do the best they could. And you had to move with the tides as well, mm -hmm. right? And right. also, you're open when you're on a beach. You're like it's open sesame, man. It's like hello. Here I am, mm -hmm. you know, there's no coconuts to, you know, hide behind, no giant mm -hmm. coconuts, you know what I mean? It's not, that's, you're just, you're really in plain visibility. So that's a, that's, that's right. a scary thing too. So there were the beaches, Utah, Gold, Juno, Sword, and Omaha. Mm -hmm. Now, did the Americans do that? <laughs> I'm just saying, who, who named yeah. those beaches? <laughs> yeah. So um, it's been a longstanding tradition in the U.S. Army, and I think for most of the Anglophone armies as well, that whenever you have an objective on a map or an objective that you're trying to reach, uh, the high command will always give it a code name. And uh, those aren't the only things that we have code names for. You know, we'll have names for objectives. We'll also have names for things called phase lines. So uh, since Operations are intended to happen in phases. Like if you're making a land assault, you'll say, okay, well, when this particular company crosses phase line dog trot, um, this one platoon will break off and vector in this direction. And uh, this other platoon will establish a base of fire. And then mm -hmm. when the and then when that platoon gets to phase line hot potato, you know, we're going to <laughs> have this particular yeah yeah and uh they can be as colorful and as imaginative as whatever unit is put in 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 charge of naming them but yeah you'll always have uh you'll always have those seemingly 
out of place nicknames that will accompany um, either a control point on a map, a baseline, or an objective that you're trying to assault. Mm, wow. And so, have you ever been there to Normandy? Uh, not yet. On Normandy Coast? Yeah, that I that would be interesting. If you go, we, we need to do like a live video thing, man, or something, podcast on that. Like, that's like, I wonder, like, well, they've got to have the names up there, right? On the on the coast now, to say, well, this is Utah, mm -hmm. this is Omaha, Gold, Juno, and Sword, right? right? Mm -hmm. And so people can identify those areas. I, I bet a lot of people go. Not only just you know, there's World War II buffs and you know enthusiasts, but there's mm -hmm. families that must make pilgrimages there to mm -hmm. know what their family went through. You know, their their mm -hmm. ancestors. You know that they were there. Um, let, let's go to a couple of the stories that you have, um, sure. to share today. Cause you're good at that. And everyone, I'm going to say the combat diaries, go get that. That's a, that's a good reading for it too. And last, and what I'm going to do is, um, everyone, if you go to the show notes, I'm going to link, uh, last year's podcast with Mike, um, on D-Day where we talk about, uh, we, we talked about four people. I think we did, um, and Jim Carroll, we talked, we there's a lot of different stories that Mike shared, so you can hear that too. So we'll have a double feature going on. Uh, but today, I know you've got. Let's let's start with my my last namesake here, Bill Smith. Let's talk okay. with him. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I could be related. You never know. Then you got to watch You're out, true. man. <laughs> Sneak mm -hmm. attack. No, so All he. Right. Yeah, this is this is a huge deal. Yeah, you know. So I will set the stage for Bill Smith. So Lieutenant William C. Smith. Uh, here was a guy who was like barely over five foot five and maybe weighed a buck 20 soaking wet. Um, but, uh, he, but, you know, despite his small stature and despite his very, very youthful appearance, I mean, this guy was just by every measure a badass. You know, um, he, uh, you know, he really was a product of his time. He was born in the early 20s, which means he came of age in the throes of the Great Depression. And, uh, you know, despite having that rough and tumble upbringing during the depression, he had actually uh, made, made quite a reputation for himself and uh, carved out an interesting niche at a surprisingly young age. Um, you know, when he, was, uh, when he was still in his teens, no less, he started a very successful insurance business. And <laughs> this is kind of funny because yeah. you know, he was a teenager when he started the business and the law was very weird. There was no technical statute for how young you had to be to start a business, mm -hmm. but he could, he had to wait until he was 18 before he was legally allowed to sell insurance. Okay. Oh, that so, makes sense though. Yeah. 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 So uh, well, he just found a very clever way to work around it. Here he was, this young teenager opened up his own insurance agency and hired full grown adults to sell the insurance for him. No way. That's cool. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, man, that is what a way to, what a way to think yeah. outside the box. And, uh, you know, so of course, after D-Day happens, uh, you know, he decides he wants to do his patriotic duty. And, uh, you know, he, uh, he ends up becoming an artillery officer. And uh, specifically, the job he had as an artilleryman was as a forward observer. Now, in the world of artillery, being a forward observer or an, or an FO, as they like to call it, is really one of the most dangerous jobs you can have in the world of the field artillery. 
because you are essentially the liaison of death. You are right there on the front Ooh. lines with whatever troop or whatever unit is in contact and they can be in heavy contact and you're on the radio trying to coordinate these artillery fires with pinpoint accuracy to a unit that's actively engaged in combat. And you know even the slightest miscalculation could bring that friendly fire on your own position instead of on the enemy. And you know the uh, the the life expectancy for a young field observer, uh, particularly in the European theater, was a little less than ten months. But you know here we are in the summer of 1944, and Bill Smith has already far exceeded that that uh, mm -hmm. that hashtag or that hash mark for his for his life expectancy because he had fought through the uh, he, he had fought through the North African campaigns. And uh, he had fought through a lot of the major campaigns that the 1st Infantry Division had been through at that point, and he was still alive to tell about it. So I said, okay, well, I made it this far. I'm probably going to, uh, you know, survive the invasion of Europe. But, you know, what, the, the stakes were incredibly high because uh, what he had done was found himself in a position where he would be um, part of the advanced team that was going ashore on Omaha Beach two hours before the actual invasion was to start. And there were only one of two ways for a forward observer to get to Omaha Beach. They uh, had to accompany the Navy frogmen aboard these little tactical dinghies, you know, these tactical rubber boats, and swim ashore to disarm the enemy mines and the anti-ship barriers. And, uh, you know, that was one way, or he could go with the landing craft in the first wave of the invasion, where he might be among the 90% casualty rate that was anticipated for that first wave. Well, either way, the odds didn't really seem to be wow. in his favor. And he said, okay, well, you know what? Let me, go, uh, let me go ahead of the invasion in the dead of night alongside these Navy frogmen and, uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll work my way, you know, into a uh, place where there's good cover and concealment and basically just uh, hide myself under whatever I can find and try to register artillery fire um, onto the enemy positions as I see them and, you know, try and soften up the German defenses as much as I can before the invasion actually starts. Well, you know, Sounds simple enough in theory and concept, but you know he gets there, and it is pitch black. It is the dead of night, and he's pretty much navigating by sound and by sound and by feeling the ground under him. So he's like, "Okay, well, I feel." And you know, there's there's me. obstacles, <laughs> right. right? There's obstacles right. on this beach, right? Uh huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he's like, "Okay, so I feel sloshiness. That means I'm still in the surf. Okay, now I feel semi-firm ground, which means I'm probably in the sand. And if I try to." Uh, interpret this from my map. Okay, I, I feel that there's going to be a, a dip in the terrain right around here. And then he gets to a point where he's able to hide himself underneath a pile of rocks. And the only light that he's able to navigate, uh, or, you know, is, able, is even able to keep any semblance of awareness of the time is the, uh, is the, is the incandescent, um, Oh gosh, uh, the name escapes me right now, and it shouldn't. Um, well, it was like a head thingy. It, like his... it was a glow in the dark um, surface of his watch. And oh my gosh, no way! Illuminescent, oh. iridescent. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah illuminescent. Illuminescent. That's yeah, that's the okay. word. Yeah, 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 that's cool. Yeah. So yeah, so 
wow. it was that small glow in the dark piece that, you know, he was able to keep any, any bit of situational awareness. And, you know, then, then he gets on the radio and then as the, uh, you know, as the haze of the pre-dawn, you know, aura starts to settle over the, uh, you know, starts to settle over the landscape, you know, he's calling in, uh, he's calling in battery fire, you know, from the, uh, from all the naval gunships that are miles offshore. And, you know, he starts calling in the first rounds of these artillery from the offshore batteries. And he says, it's a spectacular show, but at the same time, as soon as the rounds started to fall in the German positions, the Germans turned on their searchlights and they started frantically crisscrossing the beach because they knew that if they were getting artillery fire that was this accurate, there had to have been an allied observer somewhere in the surf. Mm -hmm. So, so he said, that was pretty scary because I knew that they were looking for me. And uh, I was hidden well enough to where I was underneath this pile of rocks and uh, they just blazed over the rocks, um, not aware that here I was, this American forward observer who was calling in artillery fire. That's crazy. Yeah. How, how did, what, what did they use to be able to call that in? Like, and I mean, how far away were the, you know, like, how did that happen? Yeah, so I mean, it's not, he's, it's not right. like he's talking to his watch now. You know what I right. mean? <laughs> like, kid, yeah. I need you. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, how did, how did he do that? Yeah, so there was a special radio system that he used, and it was kind of weird because one of, uh, because one of his supervisors uh, told him before he left, he said, look, whatever you do, take care of the radio. Make sure the radio doesn't get ruined because a second lieutenant is expendable, but a radio is not. <laughs> yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, uh, so, yeah. But, oh. yeah so, so it's by radio. Oh. Yeah, so, so it's like so satellite. He's using, too. well, if satellites were around back then, yeah. Um, but oh. he's, he's using this very specialized radio set and uh yeah so he, he's 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 in contact with the offshore batteries through that and yeah he's calling in this fire and he's like okay well you know that first round fell a little short i want you to raise it you know by three mils and then i want you to push it you know four mils to the left and you know he's able to uh you know, he's able to call in a lot of this accurate fire but he said you know even still uh there was no way that i could i could register fire to the point where it would save you know, as many lives as I wanted to, because he remembers after the after the first wave of the invasion was over, and after you know the last of the guns had been silenced on the German side, and he said, you know, after uh, so many hours of sitting underneath that rock pile, and he said, you know, I finally emerged, and I could see all of the dead bodies of all of our troops that were floating in the surf, and I'm just thinking, my God, you know, uh, so many of these guys who got hit in the first wave, you know, I I. Uh, I can't help but feel a little bit of survivor's guilt because, mm. you know, I, I figured that, okay, well, why me and not them? And not only that, it's just, my gosh, you know, for as much fire as I was calling in on the uh, German positions, it, uh, it weighs heavily on my soul that, you know, even that wasn't enough to save, you know, these, these hundreds of, uh, of poor fallen troops that I see lined across the beach. Mm. Wow. That's sad. That's sad. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about frogmen, those are like divers, right? They're like yes, mm -hmm. combat divers. So like if they see Correct. you and you're on the other side, they're going to kill you in the water. Right. They're going to get you mm -hmm. and feed you yeah. to the sharks. Okay. So then that's brutal. <laughs> that's, 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 and you, again, think about back then, right? And mm -hmm. if it's at night, would they dive at night? I mean, they had to at times, right? Oh, yeah. Be able yeah. To, 
uh-uh, that's mm-hmm. creepy, Mike. That's creepy. It like, is. think about yeah. it. It's like you you know what it's like. I, I remember once swimming at night out in on the in the coast in, in California. It was it was like late night and we were all just having fun, you know, just you know, young kids being stupid. And you know, you feel that little bit of seaweed on your leg and you're like, mm-hmm. uh-uh, what is that? Like, is that a, you know what I mean? I don't know. Right. Maybe it's just from being in South Africa with great whites. You know, that's a little mm-hmm. different. But whenever you feel something, you know, you could go down. And then if it's human, that's freaky at night. But um, go. I want to go back to the satellite dish. So when did that? When? <laughs> so yeah, get me straight on this. So this was okay. radio communication. When did satellite yeah. come in? In yeah, being so, used in the military. All right. So satellite comes. You know that that's really right after the space age, you know, I mean, like the birth of NASA, you know, when we were launching stuff into orbit. So, uh, yeah. Um, but, but all those satellite communications, especially the ones that at least we had back in the 20 teens when I was still in the service, uh, you know, uh, they are, uh, they are some top-notch equipment, man. They, uh, you, you, you talk about instant communication, um, from one side of the planet to another in real time and, uh, you know, clear as day. And, you know, things that are uh, things that are so well encrypted that, you know, it can't be uh, it can't be hacked by any of the enemy's signal intelligence um, operations. You know, we should really talk about this kind of thing on, on another show, like these kind of things, like satellite and radio and even the Internet, because the Internet came from the military. And we mm-hmm. forget that it's, Google did not invent the Internet. I just want You're people right. to know. Does anybody remember pre-Google? I do, because we, you know, we were on it, working, you know, putting websites up and stuff be pre-Google, you know, mm-hmm. and even in our print magazine, we were trying to get people to promote their website because they'd go spend thousands of dollars on a website. Remember way in the way back when, and, mm-hmm. you know, and then like they wouldn't promote it anywhere and there was no cert, you know, we used to get these giant Earthlink books and stuff, you know. Yeah. And now I'm really dating myself, but it's true. It happened, people. <laughs> but we should do mm-hmm. a show on communications and the, inter- uh, and the internet and satellite and all of that, because even just how fighter pilots talk to each other, to me, is amazing. Like, I, mm-hmm. I, I get it still is. Like, even if you think about how how we're even doing this podcast, right, how cell phones, mm-hmm. how we can talk through cell phones, it's pretty mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what we've done in technology and then we go right. back to world war ii and it's like dude watch out there's stuff on the beach that you don't want to touch you don't want to step on it mm-hmm. you know um and this goes beyond the jellyfish right so right. that was bill smith lieutenant william c smith man wow mm-hmm. and be that's kind of do you think it's like weirder when you're on your own too like you're on your own even though you're a team and you're you know group of of you know, soldiers together, that's kind of freaky in that you're on your own. Like that, I think there's something to that um, to look at too, getting out there. And what about that you're in a different country? Right. You know, that's, that's, that's the the other thing I think is, you know, the different countries. Um, You're just, it's different. So Tom Stafford. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I love the Stafford name. You know why, Mike? This is important. What's that? It's called Ooey Gooey Bars. In, <laughs> okay. in Porterville, California, there's, uh, and they, they're now grown as a family. It's a family, Stafford's Chocolates. 
they make ooey gooey bars and you can go watch them make all these different chocolates and they are absolutely hands down some of the best chocolates and naughty things to eat <laughs> on the planet so when i saw tom stafford i'm like i wonder if they're related you never know right <laughs> oh, you never yeah. know but like chocolate but anyway that's not what we're here to talk about chocolate but I, my mind went there immediately i was like i want an ooey gooey bar they're delicious <laughs> they come on a big stick oh yeah it's mm. Mm. yeah you do you like s'mores yeah like, and i think of that and then like oh dude like that's some serious good stuff okay so tell us about tom stafford because this guy kind of reminds me of the story of Lee Marvin in a way of like how he can right. do anything, right? Uh -huh. He's like a superhero. Yeah. yeah, he really was a jack of all trades. So uh, Tom Stafford, I guess in a lot of ways, his upbringing uh, reflects that of Bill Smith. And, you know, here with Tom Stafford, you had a, uh, you know, you had a guy who grew up in the throes of the Great Depression. And uh, unlike Smith, however, um, Tom Stafford, he uh, he remembered the New Deal as a defining aspect of his upbringing, and you know, he was even one to you know have uh, you know have real time knowledge of uh, all of these you know alphabet soup programs of the New Deal, you know like the CCC, the TVA, the WPA, and whatnot. But uh, you know he he recalled that at times you know I mean. He, even though he appreciated the uh, the logic behind wanting to get the country back to work, he said, you know, a lot of these uh, New Deal programs really look like make work projects. You know, you mm -hmm. would have uh, you would have somebody working on like a landscaping project for, for like the CCC, and mm -hmm. you know, it would be a project where you would see two guys actually doing the work, two other guys were sitting around doing nothing, and one guy was just standing off in a corner, and it turned out that the one guy off in the corner was the supervisor quote unquote and his job was really just to supervise i mean whatever that meant but, but it, it it was clearly a job that could be very well accomplished by only two people you know hmm. um so you know he uh so what he ended up doing was he joined the military um he was actually drafted out of the college rotc program and uh at first you know here was the start of a very interesting military career for him because he had a number of different MOSs, you know, that is the military occupational specialties. And he, at first he was, at first he was designated to be a supply specialist and, you know, military parlance that would make him a quartermaster. So, um, you know, he was, uh, you know, he was going to uh, the quartermaster center but uh, then he was told he was too young to lead troops in the quartermaster corps. So uh, they sent him to a non-commissioned officer school where in as little as 90 days, a, a, high pro, or a high performing soldier could earn his stripes as a technical sergeant. And uh, you know, so he, uh, he eventually goes from the US, he, he deploys to England you know, as part of the, part of the buildup to the Normandy invasion. And, uh, you know, he lands in one of the many replacement depots that are over there. And mm -hmm. he's getting ready for, uh, you know, he, he's getting ready for the invasion of Europe. But, uh, you know, then he decides, well, you know what, being a quartermaster is all fine and good, but is there something else that I could do that would be more, uh, 
more akin to the abilities I know I have and something that dovetails more into what I want to do as a soldier. So uh, that's when he sees, uh, you know, it's when he sees an ad um, at the local camp that he's at um, asking for volunteers for the six combat engineer amphibious special assault brigade. Oh. And I know that that's a mouthful, but uh, you know, it was this, you know, super secret, secret squirrel of a combat engineer unit and they were looking for volunteers. Now, you know, Tom would have been the first to tell you that he knew nothing about being a combat engineer and they weren't specifically looking for people who had any engineering or you know any type of uh you know tactical uh tactical mind emplacement or obstacle experience they really just wanted people who were eager to learn something on the job so he said hey you know what that sounds great and he volunteers for it and yeah that's how he ends up deploying uh wow. to the to to the coast of normandy and, but you know he said uh <laughs> he said it was uh, an adventure in and of itself, because we were supposed to land at Omaha, he said, but on the 6th of June, you know, uh, they, uh, they, uh, they were taking such heavy enemy fire that, uh, that their landing craft said, you know, hey, screw this, um, la the landing zone's too hot, I'm going to find you an alternate landing zone uh, miles upshore. <laughs> so, they end up uh, they end up quite a ways away from where they were supposed to be, and uh, you know then then essentially he gets off of the you know he gets off the landing craft and they're trying to find you know the rest of the Allied bodies, and uh, you know they're they're marching over uh, they're marching over some fallen comrades and once one particular incident that stood out in his mind uh, was that uh, you know he noticed that among the uh, among all the dead GIs that uh, you know he and his friends were trying to make their way. Um, around and trying to step over as they were getting to the rendezvous oh. point. He said, I noticed one of them distinctively was an army ranger captain. And he says, that surprised me because the rangers were supposed to be landing at Point Du Hoc. And I couldn't figure out why they were in this particular uh, place that we had landed down at Berville sur mer So he, he always said that that was something that he never quite understood. But, uh, you know, he you know, he, uh, f he finally fights his way through Normandy. And uh, then finally, uh, you know, after, um, you know, finally after the initial fury dies down of that invasion, uh, you know, he's, uh, <laughs> he takes in, he takes in interesting detour uh, because as a reward of sorts uh, for surviving the D-Day invasion, Tom and a few of his uh, fellow soldiers in this crack unit uh, were reassigned to POW guard duty. You know, they were guarding these German prisoners and, uh, you know, it, and it, it was, it was not a pleasant, it wasn't necessarily an unpleasant experience, but it was something that he grew very tired of very quickly because he said, you know, hey, essentially what I'm doing is I am babysitting a bunch of indignant Nazis. And he said, I got fed up with that. And I was like, uh, you know, hey, I either want to go back mm -hmm. to uh, a regular unit, my old unit, or just put me in the replacement network. And that's exactly what they did. They said, okay, well, if you don't want to guard these POWs, I'm just going to send you to another replacement center and you're going to be reassigned probably as a regular rifleman. And it's like, well, that's okay by me. So now he gets the third combat reassignment of his, uh, of his so far brief career. He's gone from being a quartermaster to being a combat engineer. Wow 
to being a rifleman rank and file in the 87th infantry division and uh he gets bored you know, quickly doesn't he <laughs> yeah he does so uh you know um they had been uh and at this time the 87th division had been pulled from Metz and they had been reattached to the third army for the relief of the beleaguered troops at Baston you know this was during the battle of the bulge mm. and uh you know so he spends most of the winter there uh, you know, fighting through the bulge, trying to break out of, uh, you know, re really trying to break out of Bastogne. And mm -hmm. uh, he has quite a few, you know, he has quite a few interesting experiences there on that front, because now as, uh, now as an infantryman, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's having, um, having more run-ins with some uh, of the local Germans. And it was at, uh, it was at one point, you know, there were, uh, yeah, there there were two Germans who he captured that were overlooking um, a a redoubt that was at the Marksburg mm -hmm. Castle, and yeah, you know, he he moves a little bit further into a town called Bad Ems, and that's where he ended up capturing, of all people, a German general. And Ooh. yeah, it, it was a uh, it was a stroke of good luck because you know it's not every day that an American GI is going to capture a high ranking Nazi general. But this general was uh, dressed in his civilian. Uh, he was he was at first dressed in his civilian clothes. And he gave no indication that he was a high-ranking officer in the Wehrmacht, and he probably would have escaped detection. But uh, you know, as uh, as Tom was as, as Tom was searching the guy's home, he found uh, he found the general's uniform in the closet, and he's like, "Oh, hey, what's this?" And then you know, the general finally admitted, "Okay, well, uh, you know." Yes, that wow. is my uniform. <laughs> yeah. But See, uh, yeah. this guy is a badass. I mean, it is. Uh -huh. It's like, so he he almost becomes a sniper slash detective. Like, I'm I'm going to, yeah. I mean, uh -huh. and do you think when he was watching over the POWs that he got some from, like, he started to learn, he observed, right? Then right. and what was going on. So that probably mm -hmm. helped too. But it's stroke of yeah. luck. But, but right. I think. Luck, there, I don't believe in luck. I believe it's, he, if he, he would have, he understood the opportunity, right? Right. It's not he just did. a stroke yeah. of luck. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, mean I, I think it, yeah, I think, uh, you know, it, it, when, when good preparation and hard work meet luck, I think that's when everything works out. Yeah. yeah that's, there's that saying. Yeah. That's exactly what I mean. It's like, you have to, you've been prepared, you've been observant, but he seems mm -hmm. to be kind of a live wire dude that just, he's, yeah. he's wants to move on, have different experiences. And he's just mm -hmm. like, Hey, let's, he's treating it like a little roller coaster game. <laughs> you know? yes. Wow. So he gets his, his dude, this is crazy. Mm -hmm. So what happens from there? Do they promote him? Well, yeah, he uh, he gets a he actually gets a battlefield promotion at uh, at some point, and uh, they even try to make an officer out of him. But he's like, you know what? I, that would just take me away from the men who I have grown very close to. And uh, you know, but uh, as time goes on, you know, he realizes, hey, you know what? I uh, I don't think that uh, there's anything else that I would rather do besides lead troops and you know and reluctantly he finally accepts a battlefield commission you know and uh yeah they say okay well you know you've been here with the unit long enough so we're going to give you a battlefield commission and you know 
as I said, he didn't want to take it at first because he didn't want to leave his troops, but he ultimately accepted it. But the process of getting it was kind of morbid because to earn a battlefield commission, the existing lieutenant had to have been killed in action or permanently evacuated from the battlefield. And you know, if you get the battlefield commission, that means you're the next ranking uh, mm. sergeant in line. And they said, okay, well, sergeant, you know, so-and-so, you are now lieutenant so-and-so. So take what's left of your platoon and try to... <laughs> try to accomplish the mission and not get killed. So the next guy behind you in rank won't have to take over. Wow. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Mm -hmm. God, how do you find these people? <laughs> you know, uh, they're, they're the everyday heroes that really live amongst us. And, you know, uh, it, it, uh, it really is a testament to, you know, what seemingly, normal people can accomplish when the chips are down mm -hmm. and you really dig deep and you pull off miracles that nobody thought were even possible. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so after he accepted that battlefield commission, you know, he, he said, okay, well, you know, I, I think, uh, I think I'm going to stay in for a while. And he, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, stayed in through the armistice was thinking he was going wow. to deploy to the Pacific, but he ended up not, you know, they, uh, they dropped the bomb and that ended that theater of the war. So he stayed on occupation duty for quite a while and, you know, ended up, uh, ended up serving in the, uh, in the cold war in Europe. And then, wow. uh, and then after that, and then after that, uh, even did a stint in Korea. Wow. And uh, yeah. And uh, it finally, closed out his career in 1963 as, uh, you know, as um, a, uh, as a budget officer in the, uh, in the office of the controller of the military district of Washington. So, you know, here was a guy who made it a career more than 20 years of active service. And yeah, I said, huh, okay, well, you know, uh, that was a fun <laughs> ride and it was a career that I never really counted on having. <laughs> well, I think he, you know, there's, um, I don't know how to explain it. There's an adrenaline thing that happens mm -hmm. in, in danger. And I think it, there, there's, it's an addiction in a way, you know, you, you mm -hmm. can get addicted to that. And I don't mean this in a bad negative way, but you know, when on a, on a easy way, like if you're on a road trip and nothing goes wrong, that's mm -hmm. a boring, boring road trip. You know what I mean? Now I should never have mm -hmm. said that. I'll probably get a flat tire with all the potholes we have across the country. <laughs> Please don't yeah. protect the car. She doesn't want it. Um, but do you know what I mean? It's like there's something about living on the edge that way and mm -hmm. having to be so observant, aware, and it's so real and raw that there's certain personalities that it just really is a big match for. And I get it. I, you know, I, I totally get that personality of being on, I mean, on the edge that way, because it is about um, not being shackled to regular life. And I think there's people that are a hundred percent suited towards it. And he obviously was, you know, um, until he became like the budget dude, then, then they put him in an office, didn't he? And, and he probably didn't like that. I have a feeling mm -hmm. he didn't like the office stuff. That's gonna be. Yeah. That's gonna suck. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it wasn't what he naturally gravitated towards, but you know, he um, he did it the best he could. Yeah, know? I mean, and you get to a point where you still want to have your foot in there, but 
yeah you know it's like musicians eventually go okay i'm not yeah. touring anymore i can't you know willie nelson's yeah. still going though for some reason yeah. he's he's i think he smoked himself out like he's like <laughs> i don't know you know it's like a, he smoked me i don't know but he's he's still going but but you know what i mean there's that um right that that personality that that's like oh this is it's an adventure almost even though it's yeah. brutal and i'm not trying to romanticize it right but there's personalities that have that like you know mm -hmm. i'm going in you know and yeah power to it man and and for all of mm -hmm. us you know for what he's done um in his in his career that's amazing amazing stories what is coming up next so people can have book number 26 on the horizon all righty well i'll give you uh give you a little bit of a preview actually two previews See? uh one yeah <laughs> one is called fire in the hole and that is a story about the combat engineers in vietnam and uh then let's see after that we have a book called sarajevo at dawn and that is talking about the spy war in bosnia um during oh, wow. the yeah during the during the nato peacekeeping mission that kicked off during the mid 90s i remember that yeah I remember that. So that that's the that's the next one. So when do we think yes, for when when does the fire in the hole come out? So uh, fire in the hole is going to be this year, and then cool. uh, and then uh, Sarajevo at dawn is going to be the following year. Okay. Well, you're busy, Mike. You're busy. Yes, ma'am. I know it's, it's it's fantastic though. I love that you're telling the stories. Are, are these books going to have, you know, the soldier stories? like you oh, do with, i mean even whenever you do like even the f-14 and stuff yeah um mm. we were talking about you with some friends the other night because he did designs um engineering for some fighter jets and um i do i i had to go and show him your books because i didn't know what i was talking about you know <laughs> what i mean it's like different names or whatever you know what i mean it, it it's num names and numbers that i don't understand He's an engineer and that that's a that's way, way beyond my paycheck. Um, so anyway, I just just I go, this is what I'm talking about. He goes, no, this is a different era anyway. So very good <laughs> stuff. And listen, I love that about, you know, learning about jets and and all of that because they have stories, too. You know, I mean, to me, I had no idea you, you're the one who taught me like, oh, yeah, we could build this and build that and then we'll send it over and sell it over to another country and then they'll use it against us later <laughs> yeah, it's like it can happen so yeah. uh very good very good uh everyone mikeguardia.com is the website to go to and again the latest two books the combat diaries true stories from the front lines of world war ii and you've got to get coyote recon the forgotten wars of colonel jd vanderpool he knows about the pacific theater for sure mm -hmm. big time kaboom that's what I'm going to say. Uh, yeah. Keep up with Mike. He is here every first Monday on Big Blend Radio, and you can keep up with us at BigBlendRadio.com. Again, uh, the show notes that I was telling you about will be in the show notes, the links over to his previous interview on World War II's um, D-Day. So thank you so much, Mike. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Lisa. Always a pleasure to be on the show.